0: sales tuners episode 81 brandon bruce co-founder at cirrus insight
1: person said no no i mean i just started on page one and just started calling down the list and they said so you mean to say that you just started calling you know everybody that lived in manhattan
0: This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown, the only weekly show where we talk about the attitude, action, and ability that gets sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get enough. And every time I step up in the building, up. It's time. It's time. It's sales tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Hal Borland, who said, knowing trees, I understand the meaning of patience. Knowing grass, I can appreciate persistence. Today's guest grew up in a tiny California town of only 800 people, where he only had one classmate at school. Yes, one classmate. From those humble beginnings, Brandon and Bruce co-founded and grew Cirrus Insight to twelve million dollars in revenue and a number forty-one ranking on the Inc. 500 list, all by helping salespeople do their best work right in their inbox. It's been a while since I've given out any five-star iTunes review love, but I'm changing things up this week. I want to give a big shout out to Steve V. 2011 who said "aha" moments every time. These are insights I can use every single week, and Jim talks to the best salespeople in the business and comes away with actionable ideas. I'm not even in sales, and I can use what I learned to grow my business. Steve, thank you so much. Hey, shoot me an email, and I'll send you either a Sales Tuners t-shirt or the sales book of your choice. All right. Make sure you stick around until the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 81, But now, let's get to the conversation where Brandon talks about the endurance he built riding a bicycle 508 miles through the desert.
1: So in 2002, I signed up for this Furnace Creek 508, which uh, went through Death Valley in the middle of the night, started out closer to the Mojave Desert, then ended up uh, near the base at 29 Palms. And so, wonderful experience. I trained pretty well for it, which is to say about 150, 200 miles in. Uh, I had taken on too many calories because I worried about running out of energy and uh, my body couldn't process all the calories. So I kind of had to empty the tank and of the desert, which people thought was kind of scary because you don't want to get dehydrated out there. But I managed to reload with enough Gatorade and water to push through. So it took me about 35 hours and seven minutes. Um, I did take a short nap, uh, largely because I started to have some uh, what I describe as minor hallucinations. Uh, I started to think that my steel bike was bending (laughs) and I kept radioing my brother who was following me in a trail car and telling him, Hey, take a look at my rear stays on my bicycle. Like they're bending and that makes me nervous. He said, no, they're not bending. You're fine. And then I started to weave in the road a little bit. And so he pulled me over. He's like, I got to tell you something. And so I bolted about five or six Red Bulls and then fell right asleep. Uh, and then, you know, bolted upright about 20 minutes later and, uh, as it turned out, and this was by pure luck, I had closed my eyes when it was still dark outside. When I opened them, uh, the sun had risen. And apparently, that's very good as far as tricking your mind and the thinking that you might have had a longer sleep than you actually had. Uh, messes with your diurnal rhythms what have you. So anyway, hop back on the bike and, and finish the last, I think at that time, I had about 180 miles left. Uh, finished the ride. So 35 hours and 7 minutes. That's kind of one of those numbers uh, that you always remember, I think. That's incredible. The the
0: 168 that I did took me uh, just over twelve hours. So I'm I'm sitting here trying to compute. Could I have done it about the same time? And the answer is absolutely not, because I was done. It sounds (laughs) like I think think we should (laughs) sign you up.
1: That should be like a that should be like a sales tuners community. If you want to see, you know, this happen, right? If you want to see Jim knock out five hundred and eight miles next, whatever, whenever the race is next held, I think it's in October. Then, you know, click on this link or something. And then if you get enough votes, we'll have to get you I'm out there. I'll be on your I am
0: going to edit this out of this podcast because <laughs> I'm not going to come to that peer pressure. Uh, at, at 168, I was done. I had no interest in ever seeing a bike for another year, but uh, it's definitely a lot of fun. And I think that endurance, though, that you're talking about from, you know, the athletic side has really carried over into your personal side, your, your work side. And I know we're going to talk a lot about that today. So specifically in the show, Brandon, we talk about the attitude, action and abilities that have led to your success. Success. And so I want to talk about your sales process a little bit today, but start by telling me like, what is Cirrus Insights and, and why does a typical customer decide to buy from you?
1: So we started the company, uh, we, my co founder Ryan Huff, and I, and we've been good buddies since uh, we met freshman year of college about 18 years ago. But we launched Cirrus Insight at the end of 2011. At the time, it was the first application to connect uh, Salesforce, so the market leading customer relationship management platform. Uh, they basically coined the phrase, the cloud back in 1999. Uh, it connected Salesforce with Gmail. So at that time, there were a lot of individual Gmail users, right? Probably a lot of listeners like me got an invite from a friend of a friend. Hey, set up a new Gmail account. So there are millions and millions of those, but it was just starting to penetrate into the business community. So a lot of small, medium-sized businesses were onboarding on Gmail. A few enterprises at that time, certainly they've gotten a lot more since then, but uh You know, Ryan largely, and then he called me and brought me on. We identified a gap in the market where Gmail did not connect with Salesforce. So if you were a salesperson, uh, you know, trying to make your number in Gmail, you were wasting a lot of time jumping from your Gmail window into a Salesforce window to look up customer records, look up prospect records, and then come back to Gmail to have those customer conversations. So what we did is built a, a Chrome extension and then a Firefox extension that basically enables you to do Salesforce, if you will, without ever leaving your inbox. And now we have the same functionality in in Outlook as well as mobile apps for iOS and Android. So basically you can stay inside Gmail or Outlook all day. Uh, Serious Insight keeps you logged into Salesforce. You can see all the Salesforce information about your customers in a nice uh, ribbon on the right-hand side of your inbox. And you can see that data from Salesforce, interact with it, update that data. And then you can also push data into Salesforce. So you can sync your emails and sync your calendar events and basically keep track of all of the sales activities or support activities or success activities, whatever the case may be if you're a customer-facing uh, person in your company. Basically, under the umbrella of uh, we want to save salespeople time. Uh, time is precious. You use time to cultivate relationships and close deals, and you don't need to be spending it doing manual lookups and manual data entry
0: well I know it was that notion of being able to stay inside the Gmail inbox that first attracted me to you guys I was a customer back in 2012 to about the end of 2013 before the company I was working for uh, was acquired and as we've kind of talked before once you get acquired by Oracle they kind of pull you off Salesforce and you don't get to do that anymore but but I loved it and you were kind of one of those first pioneers of this what is now the sales acceleration space and I want to talk just a little bit about that brandon you know you guys you guys have taken on just a bit of funding uh, but you you're competing against multi-billion dollar companies as well as, you know, startups with with tens of millions of dollars in VC behind them. How are you competing and, and how are you continuously uh, differentiating
1: from them? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a race. I think software as with many industries, biotech moves very fast, but software moves really fast, right? I mean, I think it's safe to say over the last 6 years, you know, we've we've rebuilt our entire platform and our entire architecture and stack at least twice uh, to make sure that it was up To the standards that we wanted to see, but also make sure it was scalable for our customers. So we as we added on, you know, 10s of 1000s of new users and and hundreds and even 1000s of new customer logos that we could serve everybody in the app would still be very responsive and very fast. You know, to your point, I think, early on, you know, within the first year or two of starting a company, we saw some other companies that were either competing directly with us or slightly tangential to our space, and they might go out and raise you know, 20, 30, $40 million, and whenever we would get those Google alerts, it would be like, gulp, you know, oh, maybe, maybe this is it, you know, may, maybe they're going to basically kill the category, because they, they have all this money. And while a number of those firms have done very well with it, uh, some others have come and gone. Um, and I think, you know, kind of building on that endurance sport mentality you talked about earlier, yeah, you know, I think of it in part as it's a little bit of a war of attrition. It's a you know how how long will you stick with it? How hard are you willing to work? And for us, while we haven't had you know the big resources to maybe move faster earlier, uh, the benefit of that is that it's kept us really focused. So you know we've done some R and D in some areas and decided not to pursue. But by and large, we've stayed very focused on exactly what our customers want us to build, uh, delivering that to them in as fast, efficient as way as possible. And we haven't gotten, you know, distracted by, uh, you know, shiny objects that I think have, uh, you know, maybe taken you know, some companies astray. Um, we just can't afford to do it. So as much fun as it would be uh, to try to build these other types of applications and so forth, uh, we simply can't because we're intentionally uh, resource constrained, and and basically that's caused us to only do what our customers are asking us to do. And I think that's uh, that's been a positive influence on us. I think.
0: Sure. I think staying close to the customer is the way we all can truly succeed. Just as you mentioned, some of those people get uh, that shiny object syndrome and they kind of go away and just build stuff for the sake of building it. And you have to stay focused. And regardless of that focus, I know, you know, that doesn't prevent you from having roadblocks and challenges and hurdles. And you got one that you're facing right now. One of the biggest sources of leads that you've had, uh, or marketing channels, is being you know the number one ranked app on the Salesforce App Exchange. But they've recently uh, pulled you from that. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you're overcoming that today?
1: Yeah, I mean, when we launched uh, six years ago, one of the most important things about how we launched is that we launched you know into an ecosystem. So, uh, as many listeners uh, may know, Salesforce is the leading, the market leading. Uh, CRM platform, and one of the ways that they've done very well is to engage lots of independent software vendors to build software that interacts with their core platform. Uh, and we've been lucky enough for the last six, seven years uh, to be one of those partners. And, and Ryan, my co-founder, has experience in the years, you know, five, six years before that, building software on the Salesforce platform, custom private software, as well as a lot of the other apps that people can see today on the Salesforce App Exchange. So when we launched, we, we did get a lot of visibility uh, through that platform. Uh, and it helped, of course, to be first. So when customers out there that were using Gmail were saying, hey, we really need an integration solution with Salesforce, you know, if they went and looked at the app exchange, they would see us and okay, great. And then as more people downloaded it, the higher we rose up the charts, the more people saw us. So it was a very virtuous cycle. Um, you know, fast forward uh, six years, you know, we had about 2000 reviews. Uh, on the App Exchange, which made us the third highest reviewed app of all time, behind uh, DocuSign and EchoSign, which was acquired by Adobe, and so it was a great way to have visibility and for customers to read what other customers thought. But as happens sometimes, life gets competitive. So uh, when Salesforce purchased a company called RelateIQ a couple of years ago, uh, after a couple of years, they really added it to their sales portfolio. So they wanted their salespeople really pushing that application. And as a result, like previous applications that were on the app exchange that aren't anymore today for competitive reasons like HubSpot and Marketo uh, and, and now CRS Insight, we're obviously a lot smaller than HubSpot and Marketo, but nevertheless, we also are now not on the App Exchange, which has simply pushed us to work harder uh, to get the word out through the other channels that we've developed and make sure we maintain that presence in the Salesforce ecosystem while at the same time trying to expand our market. I'm
0: intrigued, Brandon, because my my guess is you haven't always been the person you are today forever. So take me way back. Like, how did you actually even get involved uh, in sales?
1: I did some sales and kind of managed operations for uh, a high speed bandwidth company um, in the late '90s in California, and that was a really interesting experience, also for competitive reasons. So we were basically reselling uh, T1 through T3 lines uh, for big telcos that by law in California were not permitted to sell directly to uh, end customers. And so they had to go through us and other resellers. And so we did a business that way and bundled on other consulting services on top until that industry got deregulated, um, which was basically the end of what we as a reseller and the other resellers did, uh, because then the telcos could sell direct for about half the price. Uh, So that was an interesting experience to have just to see uh, how quickly markets uh, can shift in some respects. But I think my you know my my biggest formative experience doing sales was in the capacity of doing fundraising., uh, so I worked for a local college here in East Tennessee, and I started there uh, and not long after I started, then uh, two thousand and eight, the recession hit. And so I found that I had filled my schedule with meetings with uh, alumni, most of whom were retired. And so I was having a lot of living room conversations with folks that were otherwise scheduled to ask for Substantial contributions to, you know, scholarship funds, uh, to naming classrooms inside buildings, uh, contributing to the endowment. Um, but these were folks who basically said, "Look, we, we would love to do it. Uh, we've done it in the past, or we were hoping to be able to do it now." Uh, but you know, our four hundred and one k is down forty percent uh, over the last two or three months, and so now is not the right time. And and I think that was an important experience because one. Uh, they were right. I mean that that wasn't the right time for them. So it was a time where we could have take you know a soft pledge, hey, I I'm willing to do this as long as I get a rebound and you know see more portfolio come back in a few years. But of course, most are just saying, hey, let's cool our jets and let's continue this conversation over the next few years. Um, so it, it certainly taught some patience and it taught some reality as far as look, you can do a great job as a salesperson and have really good relationship building conversations. But 99% of the folks that I was talking to were, were not in a position to make the gifts even that they wanted to make. But it also taught in some ways a pivot. So rather than focus on the gifts today, uh, what I and the rest of the team did was really focus on uh, estate planning, You know, helping people make plans to support the college uh, in their estates. And so those were gifts, uh, some of which came to fruition while I was there, and some of which will continue to benefit the college you know, 10, 20 years from now. Um, which I think is cool. So, so it is kind of learning to slow down and play the long game. Uh, not all the time because we have to keep the lights on, but uh, meeting the customer, in this case donors, uh, where they are and then trying to support the institution in the long run. So not a mile away, but you know, 500 miles away, we can see a good result.
0: You know, between the, these pivots that you've had to go through, the challenges you've had to overcome, the uh, endurance sports that you like to participate in, it, it kind of feels like you're attracted uh, to repetitive uh, things. Talk about that and, and the role that's played in, in what has made you successful.
1: It's funny. I mean, I, I, did, uh, I rode on the crew team in college, which is, which is quintessentially a repetitive sport. So on the one hand, it's an individual sport because it's you on a rolling seat with an oar. Uh, Pulling as hard as you can for a set distance or a set amount of time, Uh, but it's also a team sport because in my case I was in an eight-person boat with a coxswain. So you're pulling, and and you're only going to get a good result when everyone's you know pulling through the water at exactly the same time. But for me, you know, and I say it, and it sounds uh, self-effacing to say, I really like you know simple repetitive tasks. but I think that goes back, I remember, even even as a youngster, my dad would say, you know, if he asked us to go out into the yard and pick weeds, he'd say, well, you know, don't don't look all disappointed about it. You'd make it into a game. You know, and I, my little brother and I would go out, okay, well, which one of us can get the most weeds in the next five minutes? You know, one of us wins a prize or something. So, you know, as soon as you make it interesting, make it fun, you get curious, like, gosh, I wonder if I, if I really did get in a stance and work hard, I wonder how many I could pull. Uh, I wonder how fast I could go. Maybe I could be finished with this and and all the time I would have wasted complaining about it. I could have just knocked it out. And so I do think there can be, uh, you know, certainly some measure of satisfaction and and sometimes even a little bit of joy in doing something that looks very repetitive, in some respects, almost boring. Um, But doing it efficiently and doing it well brings its own reward. So, you know, when it comes to building out a spreadsheet or working down a call list, Sometimes those things are like, oh, let's, you know, can we find an intern to do that, right? Those are classic intern tasks. Like, those are usually things where I'm like, oh, I'll knock that out. I'll knock that out real fast because um, I enjoy it and I know I can get it done quickly. And I think a lot of those things um, are probably skills or tactics, what have you, that helped us to get off the ground because in, in the early days, especially, and even still now, those were the things that moved the needle the most. Uh, it was simply like, yeah, I'm going to set up 20 calls today and I'm going to talk with each You know, person for half an hour, and that's gonna be my whole day. But it was efficient because it was back to back to back calls, and uh, we got a lot of good information that way
0: you know Jim Collins wrote uh, several books and in one of them he talked about the idea of a 20 mile march and the the whole concept I'll, I'll paraphrase it but it's in the whole t- uh, concept there's two teams they're racing to the north pole one of them they get up and whether the weather's good or bad they march for 20 miles and they stop and they take up uh, camp for the night the other team if the weather's bad they don't do anything they just kind of stay put let the weather weather pass and then they may sit two or 3 days but then if the weather's good one day they'll go for 100 miles and and, you know, just kind of repeat that pattern. And it looks about it, he, he takes it to the extreme, that team that, you know, would kind of wait out the weather or do that. They ended up dying, whereas the team that was doing the 20 miles every single day, they ultimately made it and uh, were in good health and good spirits and all that kind of stuff. And it kind of resembles what you're talking about. It's just like the, the fundamentals. The, the blocking and tackling that a lot of people don't want to do, I love the fact that you're as the CEO of the company and co-founder, you're willing to come down and do those basic things. But in sales, it's it, it seems to me that's the stuff that gets people ahead. The best reps are the ones that have processes and they run the same process, the same place every single day, day in and day out. They're not getting fancy. They're not you know trying to take all these new tips, tricks, and techniques and go apply them all. They're just doing the things that they know work. And they get the result that they're you know seeking out to get. So I love hearing you say that again from your role specifically, uh, founder and CEO of the company.
1: Yeah, I think I think what we've seen and a lot of folks have seen across any industry is that things that you know worked pretty dang well even a few years ago. Kind of you know the race to build the biggest email list one because uh, you had that many people and you could communicate with them, and then a certain percentage uh, would write back and a certain percentage would convert, etc. So you could really run your funnel that way. Um, It's still valuable to have a big email list, but I don't think it's the same as as what it used to be. You know, now it's it's much more valuable to have, you know, sort of a tribe, as Seth Godin would say, that's really engaged with you and that really wants those communications. Whereas all of us now are receiving, you know, a few hundred emails a day. And so there's, you know, the signal to noise ratio is pretty out of balance. Um, It's not as valuable as it used to be just to send lots and lots of emails. Uh, still good to send emails, but now you got to put a little more time into, well, how do I craft it to make sure it's really engaging and valuable to the recipient? Uh, same with phone calls, especially now that all, pretty much all of us are on cell phones. I mean, we don't even have landlines in the office. Since everyone's on cell phones, everyone has caller ID. Um, and beyond that, everyone's pretty tempted just to let everything go to voicemail now. With automated transcripts, you can just read it and see if you're even interested in the message at all. Which I think makes that difficult. Uh, not to say that making calls and leaving voicemails isn't a great way to get in front of customers. It can be. Uh, it just means that kind of the uh, you know the smile and dial uh, tactics before, where you could just really power out hundreds of calls and rely on just volume to do the trick. I think now it requires certainly some volume. You'll ne- you'll never get out of doing some of that. Um, but you have, to, you have to be pretty smart and have done quite a bit of research because the bar for getting the customer to be curious about what you're talking about, I think, is higher now than it was even a few years ago. Uh, yeah.
0: So you've, you've done a lot of writing. Uh, I know you've got a book available on Amazon. Uh, I've read a lot of your articles that you have on LinkedIn. One of the things you talk about is just what you were starting to reference is the scale versus vanity metrics, right? So should we be going after a number of emails or a number of phone calls or, you know, et cetera, or should we just be finding the best ways to communicate and connect with the right prospects? Can you talk a little bit more about that, Braden?
1: Yeah, I think and some of this came from from one of our customers and a uh, uh, big nationwide uh, fitness center network, gym cent- gym network, and so you know we had showed him email open tracking on the demo, and he said that's great. We'll use that. He said that said I don't really care how many email opens we get. He said I sell gym memberships. I measure my team on selling gym memberships. I'm measured on gym memberships. Our company is measured on gym memberships, right? It's top line, bottom line. That's what our shareholders look at. So I don't really give a hoot, except you didn't say hoot, <laughs> about email opens. I care about converting into gym memberships. Show me the end-to-end workflow. You know, how, how does Sears Insight really connect with Salesforce and make sure that, you know, everything, the dominoes start to fall in the direction of selling a gym membership and help us close those deals. And so we showed him, oh, sure enough, you know, not only can you track the email open, but you can then, you know, convert uh, that customer inside of Sears inside the side panel. You can advance the opportunity stages, you can track and assign cases, et cetera, et cetera. So you really he could really do his entire workflow and his team could do it uh, from the inbox, which was a lot faster than jumping back and forth between multiple platforms. Um, so that sale came through, which was great. But I've always remembered that in terms of you know all of us are are tracking lots of stuff now, so it's the era of big data, which in many respects just simply means we have more data to look at. The question, though, then is what data is important. So yes, our email opens a, a decent, in some cases, leading indicator. Like okay, we have a decent email list; people were decently uh, interested in the subject line that we put in. That's great, but just the fact that they opened it um, does not a sale make. Um, So, are we tracking the entire funnel? Did the email opens translate into meaningful replies or translate into scheduled meetings? Did the meetings actually happen? Did the meetings that actually happened uh, yield an opportunity? Did we work the opportunity through the stages and convert it? So, yeah, I think it's important to pause long enough so that we don't get distracted by, oh, look, a power dialer software. Let's just make tons of calls and we'll feel great you might. It could be cathartic, um but if it doesn't translate into sales, you, you know you may be disappointed after a while. The same with any software. Um and we use a lot of tools internally, and we've tried lots of different strategies. But we do at least try to pause, especially as we embark on new new endeavors, is think about, okay, what what really are we trying to accomplish here? Because otherwise uh, you can have a lot of you know sound and fury but maybe not exactly the results that you want to get once you look at it, you know, a year later.
0: With regards to pausing and slowing down, another article that I read, you talked about, you know, you're comparing sales to that of like a five-star chef uh, preparing his meals and how he needed things, you know, in the right order, in the right place in order to be able to go fast. Talk to me about that. Give me more about that analogy.
1: I'm kind of the the amateur uh, chef at home, but you know, what I always laugh about is when you watch the shows on TV, you, know, you watch Iron Chef or Top Chef uh, like uh, or a lot of the cooking shows, it'll be like, "Hey, you know Rachel, uh, thirty minute meals." And it's like, well, it's thirty minutes because someone already went to the store and then they already pre-measured everything, and it's all in the cupboards and stuff, and you know, pop them open and put them in the bowl. So it actually takes it takes time to do all that preparation, but it's the preparation that enables the dish to come together. You know, really efficiently, and then it's always in the right proportion, and it's probably going to taste good unless you manage to burn it or something. So, yeah, having everything in its place in its place is 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 simply a path to making sure that you don't waste time. Because um, all of us know, you know, when we lose something, when we misplace our keys, it, it takes a lot longer out of the day than just the process of finding the keys. It sets off a whole chain of events that can, you know, delay your first meeting, which delays your meetings for the entire day, etc. And so. Yeah, staying organized has always been something, it's something that I inherited, right? I mean, I remember from a young age, my mom just making lists, lists of things to do, lists of things she's done, a daily list, uh, keeping that, you know, calendar. This was before Palm Pilots and all that, but just the paper calendar. And uh, so, yeah, I inherited that. So if it, if it makes it on the list, then it's got a really high likelihood of getting done because it's organized and I have this is the main goal and these are the subsidiary things that have to happen for the main goal to get achieved, etc., if it doesn't make it on the list, then it's then it's pretty ad hoc. I mean, there's a chance it might get done, but it, it then it's more then it's more up to luck if it happens or not. It will be less intentional.
0: And well, I love that, Brandon. So hey, I've got to take a quick break so that we can say thank you to our sponsors. But when we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away, and sales tuners, you don't go away there. We'll be right back. Costello has been a sponsor of this show for several months now, so I wanted to call founder and CEO Frank Dale and ask him why exactly he built Costello. You and I have talked to a lot of salespeople, and
1: I've yet to meet one that doesn't want to be great. But if we look at the tools that they have available to them, they're not built to make their job easier. We have CRM, and it's great for contact management, We have awesome tools like our friends at Sales Loft that will help you with cadences and and reaching out to prospective customers. But the second we start talking to someone, we're stuck with Post-it notes, Google Docs, and Evernote templates. And if you're trying to run a dynamic sales call, that just doesn't cut it. And so what that leads to is forgetting to ask that question you meant to ask, not remembering that customer story when you need to tell it, and then data that maybe we need to
0: understand what's going on in the business, not making it back to CRM connect with Frank and his team or request a demo at andcostello.com. That's A-N-D-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com and see why their platform is truly changing the way reps run sales calls. We're back and it's time for the money round. Brandon, are you ready for the money round? Let's do it. Here we go. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional?
1: Oh, if I look back, I think the number one thing is, 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 is my parents, you know, how I was raised. Uh, I had a great childhood and got to be curious and learn a lot and push myself. And I think, uh, you know, that, that's had the biggest influence on me for sure.
0: If you were to start over today in sales, what would you tell yourself to spend the next 30 days doing?
1: Just making phone calls all day. Um, I think it's the best way of setting up conversations. I mean, to the extent that you can have in-person meetings. But I, but I still remember reading and I honestly can't remember the book or even what business it was about. But they asked the person, well, how did you get started starting your business? And they said, well, I had a card table and a foldout chair and a, uh, and a phone book of Manhattan. And so, I just started calling. And, and so, the interviewer said, well, okay, so, so who did you decide? You know, What was the persona? What was the target market? The person said, no, no, I mean, I just started on page one and just started calling down the list. And they said, so you mean to say that you just started calling you know, everybody that lived in Manhattan? they're like, yeah, you know, and they built a huge company that way because that got them their start because uh, that's the only way we really learn. People will tell us what they really think, uh, especially if, in your, if, in your, if you're in New York, they'll definitely tell you what they really think.
0: Two-part question for you here. Which phrase describes you best and why? I love to win or I hate to lose?
1: Oh, it's definitely a combination of both, uh, but, but I think more of the former. Uh, I do really love to win, which is to say... Um, if, an, if I have an idea or if I'm part of a team that's trying to do something uh, and, and we achieve that, uh, I, I do derive a lot of satisfaction from that. It makes me happy.
0: What's a book that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others?
1: It, it's one that I read really recently and that I have I've bought a lot of copies and I'm giving them to my friends uh, here in town. But It's called Tattoos on the Heart. Uh, it's by Father Gregory Boyle, who's the founder of Homeboy Industries. In Los Angeles, and uh, just a wonderful read. I think insights across the board, regardless of you know where you live, what you do for work. Um, you know, his big focus is on kinship, and I so I think it's a great it's a great book for for our time, for any time, um, because it just focuses on look, we're at the end of the day, uh, we are all in this together. So to the extent that we can uh, treat each other with a high level of kinship, really relate to one another. Gosh, it makes things a lot more fun.
0: Sales tuners, if you'd like to check out Brandon's suggestion of Tattoos on the Heart for free, you can head on over to salestuners.com slash book. There you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com slash book for Tattoos on the Heart. And Brandon, you couldn't be more right. That's something, kinship, uh, it, it, we need to be considering, especially in today's uh, climate. What's currently at the top of your bucket list?
1: You know one of the things I'm most looking forward to is uh, uh taking my kids traveling and going traveling with them because uh, I've done some traveling, but certainly not a lot a lot and so my kids are six and eight now, and I think over the next couple of years, my wife and I are looking forward to you know taking them on some big trips so that they can see uh, lots of different peoples and cultures around the world you know how they live, learn more about history, see what's going on in the great world um so yeah, that's 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 probably right up there toward the top of my list.
0: Brandon, what's the biggest piece of advice that you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today?
1: Keep grinding. That's a great word for it. And I think it's it's finding joy in the grind. I think um, you know there's a lot of focus on you know quote unquote work life balance. Um, I think that's important. I mean I you know I like to be outside as much as possible. I'm an athlete. Uh, I'm a big family man, so I like to spend as much time with my family as possible. Um, that said. Uh, I don't think of it as like, uh, oh, geez, I need to make sure to maximize my life and spend the least amount of time at work. Uh, I think work's an important part of life. Uh, and I think that we can get a lot of enjoyment and satisfaction out of it. And it's a way to push ourselves. Uh, so it's, you know, it's to the extent possible, uh, enjoying the work, um, going hard, right? We only, we only get uh, one trip around as far as we know. And so, yeah, dig in, uh, participate in the grind. I think it's a fun thing to do.
0: As we wrapped up, Brandon gave an open invitation to anyone traveling through Knoxville or find themselves on their way to the Great Smoky Mountain National Park to stop by the Sears inside office for lunch. Otherwise, LinkedIn or in the middle of a Peloton is the best way to connect with him. Let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, do the boring work. The best salespeople I've ever met run the same process every single time. I know how boring that sounds to most of you, but the truth is you don't have to get fancy to win in sales. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Focus on the little things, those fundamental foundational elements that you know actually move the needle. Number two, control the signal versus the noise. With the volume of email being sent by sales reps today, combined with the number of calls being logged, you have to stand out from the crowd. Think about your own life. How many emails do you delete without opening? How many calls do you screen with caller ID and wait for the voicemail transcription to even see if it's worth your time? If you sound like every other sales rep out there, why would any buyer think differently of you? Number three, vanity metrics are worthless. I'll admit when personal email open tracking first came out, I was thrilled until I started having prospects open the same message 37 times yet never hitting reply you know you're in sales to close deals. So if you're going to track numbers, don't track things that are meaningless. When you send an email, track whether or not it got a reply. Track whether that reply led to a scheduled meeting or opportunity. And Until you get to that level, you're really just playing a guessing game. That's it. Those are my takeaways, but I'd love to hear yours. Please tweet at me, at SalesTuners, or shoot me an email, jim at salestuners.com. I reply to every message that I get. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, I'm Jim Brown. Let's make it rain. Thank you for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com and don't forget to subscribe. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And they stay there. And they stay- If you had x-ray vision but closed your eyes, could you still see?